want to get right into this message this morning. There are some people, maybe even a lot of people, who feel like the Bible is nothing more than a, a book of do's and don'ts. And if you, if you only read the Old Testament, I can see why you might feel that way. Because the law of Moses and what they lived under in the Old Testament was pretty much just that. It was a, a list of do's and don'ts. I am so glad that we as Christians do not live under the entirety of the law that we read about in the Old Testament. The, majority, the morality part of the law still applies. In fact, we still follow that, and a lot of the laws of our land are based on that morality part of, of the, the law from the Old Testament. But we don't follow the ceremonial part. We don't follow the dietary laws. And Romans 6, or six chapter, chapter 6, verses 14 and 15 says this, For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. So while we are now living under grace and no longer under the system of the Old Testament law, it doesn't, what Paul was writing here, he was saying, it doesn't give us an excuse to sin, and it doesn't mean that we're to live in a lawless society. Grace doesn't mean you go do whatever you want. So let's talk for just a minute about the law in the Old Testament and the rigid system of do's and don'ts that the, the Jewish people were commanded to obey. In the Old Testament, the Jewish rabbis actually identified 613 commands that the people of Israel were required to obey. In the Old Testament law, the, what is called the law of Moses, uh, God identified 10 basic moral commandments that men were to keep. Most folks know um, most or some of the Ten Commandments as they're listed in chapter 20 of the book of Exodus. Don't kill, don't steal, and on and on. And while Ten Commandments are a lot easier to keep than 613, it seems that a lot of people struggle with the Ten. Some people even question the validity of those Ten. Is that really what it meant? people in today's society. Many people today, even in church, often ask questions, well, what is sin? Does the Bible specifically say that I can't do this or that I have to do that? Am I saved? And or can I still go to heaven if I do this or if I don't do this? It's almost as if some people want to know where the sin line is so they can live as close to it as possible without actually crossing the line. In the text we're studying today, the prophet Micah, we don't read a lot, we don't talk a lot about Micah, but he, the prophet Micah pairs the list down a bit. So we went from 613, we kind of condensed it into 10, and here in Micah, he condenses it down to three simple commandments that if followed, will keep us in check for the 10. If you have ever wondered about what God wants for for you, what he wants from you. The passage we're looking at today tells us clearly what the Lord wants you to do and what he wants to be in your life. Most questions that people have regarding how to live could be summed up in one question. Lord, what do you want from me? Lord, what do you want from me? With that, let's go to Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. 
Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. This passage opens with God himself serving in the role of kind of a a prosecuting attorney. And calling on creation in verses 1 and 2 to witness the case that he is fixing to lodge or getting ready to lodge against the people of Israel. It seems that God has already brought the charges against them. He has already said, you've sinned. And now he was going to present his case against them. In verse 3, God makes a plea to his people, the people of Israel, by asking two important questions that in a way reveal his frustration with the people of Israel. He asked them, what have I done to you, and how have I burdened you? In other words, Israel, what have I done to offend you? What have I done that would cause you to walk in rebellion against me? Then in verse 4, God reminds Israel how good he has been to them. He reminds them how he brought them out of slavery in Egypt and and kept them and, and provided for them as they wandered through the wilderness He reminds them of the leaders that he gave them, leaders who did their best to show the people the right path to walk. Then he closes in verse 5 by pleading with Israel to remember their journey, that they would know or remember the righteous acts of the Lord. In other words, folks, I want you to really get this. I'm telling you all of this for a reason because I really want you to get this. What God was doing here was what he had done many times before. He was calling on his people, the Jews or the Israelites, however you want to call them, he was calling on his people to abandon their sinful ways, repent of their evil ways, and remember his goodness and faithfulness to him, to them, and as a result, return to him. Micah wrote this book 700 years before Jesus was born. And yet this same message that Micah delivered to them is as fresh and as needed for us today as it was over 2,700 years ago. Whether we want to admit it or not, we are a lot like ancient Israel. The Lord has been good to us. He has saved us. He has changed our lives. He has met our needs. He's answered our prayers. He has blessed us in amazing ways and still far too many times. In spite of that, for whatever reason, we wander away from him. So before we shake our heads in disgust at the Israelites and yell, yeah, you tell them, God, go get them. We need to be completely honest and admit that sometimes we too refuse to obey even the simplest of God's commands. We like when God chastises others. We like reading about that. And we shake our heads like Peter doing silly stuff. Peter. How could you do? And then if we're really honest, though, many times we find ourselves doing the same or maybe a whole lot worse. So let's be careful before we're too hard on people. We, too, like the people of Israel, often take God for granted. We neglect to worship him when we have the opportunity. We stay away from his house when it is time to worship because we have other things that we want to do. We allow anger 
unforgiveness, and a lack of genuine love for others hinder our walk with the Lord. We tolerate sin in our lives. We refuse to abandon our sin. We refuse to repent. We place our will above his. And we do as we please instead of doing what he tells us to do in his word. We need to be careful of our reaction toward the Israelites because the list of grievances against us is at least as long as the list of grievances against them. God has been so good to us, and he deserves better from us than what he gets. He deserves better than second place in our lives. Sadly, sometimes he doesn't even get second place in our lives. When he should be and must be first in our hearts before everything else. He deserves our worship. He deserves our obedience. And he deserves our love. As it was with the Israelites in Micah's day, God deserves to be treated far better than we often treat him. God doesn't just want to be our go-to guy. He doesn't just want to be our help in time of trouble. Oh, he is that. He, but he doesn't want to just be those things. He wants to be our everything all the time. Micah's message should speak to us today, and through it I pray that, that we hear God's call to repent and come back to him. Joshua 24, 15 says, Choose you this day who you will serve. When Elijah asked the Israelites in 1 Kings 18, 21, how long will you waver between two opinions? What he was saying, he was calling them out for trying to hold on to God with one hand while at the same time trying to hold on to Baal with the other. And he was saying, how long are you going to go back and forth between those two things? He goes right along with the scripture we read before that. Choose you this day who you will serve. It is time that we too decide who or what it is we're going to serve. We need to make up our minds that either we go after God with all our heart or we go after the world. You can't have both. We've been talking about that very thing on Wednesday nights in Bible study. We've been studying 1 John. And in 1 John, we see the example over and over of how light, representing righteousness, cannot coexist with darkness, representing sin. Jesus made this clear in John 14, 15, when he said, If you love me, you will obey what I command. There's, there's, no, there's no middle ground there. Either we love the Lord with all our heart, or we don't. There is no such thing as light and darkness that lives together. Now, we like to think that there's gray areas everywhere. There's really not. The Bible makes it very clear that light and darkness cannot live together. Just as he did with the Israelites in Micah chapter 6, God has a very valid case against us as well. We are guilty. But I am afraid we too, as Israel did, have a hard time seeing our true condition. But God's call to repent still stands. And those who are wise hear it and honor it. So I will ask you today, what will you do with God's command to repent? 
With that, let's go to Micah chapter 6 and read verses 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come with him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with the thousands, with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God. If you go back to verse 6, some people read these verses and they interpret it as Israel's willingness to repent. Willingness to, to pay any price to be right with God. Others read it, and I tend to lean this direction, that it's more of an irreverent attitude towards God. One that looks as, toward God as some type of a cosmic extortioner who can be bought off with gifts. It's almost like they're saying, okay, we've sinned. What's it going to take to make you happy now, God? Because they continue to escalate. Each thing they offer is just a little bit more and a little bit more. And it's like, okay, you caught us. What's it going to cost? And that's not what God wanted. The problem with the response was that they had come to view sacrifices as nothing more than a payoff for getting caught. Something they could pay and then move on and continue living the exact same way with absolutely no effort on their part to change and absolutely no intention of serving God, which was all that God wanted in the first place. They thought God could be bought off. They believed he could be satisfied with the works of their hands, an attitude of, once again, okay, you got me. What do you want this time? In these verses, they offer these escalating promises of sacrifice that culminates in this outrageous offer of sacrificing their very own firstborn child. What do you need? You want rams? You want rivers of oil? You want my firstborn child? What do you want, God? Dr. Alan Carr described it this way. He said, they either believe God would be pleased with human sacrifice or they are sarcastic to the point of irreverence. Their attitude reveals a total lack of understanding on their part of who God is and what God requires for salvation. End of quote. The sacrifices demanded under the law were not given so that Israel could do something to satisfy God. No, they were given as means for God to administer grace and forgiveness to repentant sinners. The blood of animals could never satisfy God. These sacrifices were only at best a shadow of a far better sacrifice to come later. A sacrifice that would actually satisfy God and take away sin forever. Their sacrifices pointed ahead to Jesus Christ. Who would give his life on a cross as a ransom for sin. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
Many people in our day seem to have the same attitude towards God as these Israelites did in Micah's day. It's an attitude of, what more does God want from me? I go to church when I can. I, I even throw a little bit in the offering every now and then. I'm a pretty good person. What more could he possibly want from me than that? In other words, Lord, what do you want from me? As it was in Micah's day, far too many people today believe God can be bought off. Well, maybe God will be happy if I just give a little more. Maybe God will be happy if I do a little more. Maybe he'll be happy if I try a little harder and on and on and on. But here's the problem. Everyone has their limits. They'll only go so far before they say, you're expecting too much now. I was willing to do a little bit, but that's just too much. They set limits on commitment to him. They set limits on devotion to him. They set limits on what they're willing to give, to do, and to be in order to satisfy God. Like Israel, they look at God through cynical eyes and wonder, what do I have to do now to please him? What so many people fail to understand is a simple fact. God cannot be bought. There is nothing that you can do on your own to please him. There is nothing you can give. There is nothing you can offer. And there is no deal that you can make to get salvation. In fact, no matter what you do, you will never be pleasing to God on your own or through your own efforts. It takes far more than any of us can do to please God. In fact, there is only one thing that pleases God, and that's faith. Not just faith in general, but specifically faith in Jesus Christ. In what he did when he died on the cross and when he rose again from the dead. The only way that will be pleasing to God is when we are found in Christ. We cannot earn, we cannot buy salvation. Salvation can only come through our faith in Jesus Christ. 1 John 2 2. We've read this just recently in Bible study. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. It's talking about Jesus. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is the solution to sin. He is not a solution. He is the only solution to sin. Acts 4.12 says this. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. John 14.6 says this. And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Before I leave this thought, I'm going to point out the real heart of the people of Israel's problem. The real problem was they didn't consider themselves sinners. They didn't see themselves as being so horribly bad. After all, the people in the areas and the countries around them were far worse. And their problem was they just didn't think they were all that bad. But regardless of how they pictured themselves, the truth was they were just as bad as God said they were. And so are we. 
We are so bad that we all deserve hell. And the only hope any of us have for escaping hell is through Jesus Christ. And until we come to grips with who and what we really are, we will never be saved. Warren Wiersbe said it like this. He said, the only people God can save are lost people. The only people God can, can forgive are guilty people. If we see ourselves as God sees us, then we can come by faith, then we can by faith become what he wants us to become. End of quote. Israel's obvious guilt before God should have been, it should have motivated them to repent of their sin. It should have motivated them to, to humble themselves before God and seek him. But it didn't. They couldn't, or maybe they just didn't want to see how wicked they were. And unfortunately, most people today are not any different. But until we see how wicked we are on our own without Jesus, we will never seek the Lord. And until we seek the Lord, we will never be right with him. As long as we compare ourselves to someone else, as long as we can pick out somebody that we know that lives a worse life than us, then we will continue to justify how we are living, what we're doing, and that will never change. Because after all, if I'm better than them, then why do I need anything? But when we realize that every one of us was born as a sinner, and we can do nothing, we can't create enough goodness in ourselves to be saved. It's only through Jesus Christ. In the same way that Capital One asks the question, what's in your wallet? Let me ask you today a much more important question. What's in your heart? Remember, salvation is not about what you can do. Salvation is about what Jesus already did. Micah's answer to the sarcastic words of Israel is straight to the point. In verse 8, he says, God has showed you, O man, what is good. In other words, Micah was saying, you already know what God wants. And if you would have taken the time to read his word, you would know what it will take to please the Lord. And it was simply repent. That's all they had to do. Repent and turn from their evil ways. Stop doing what they were doing. Israel's spiritual blindness had caused them to offer everything. Not quite everything. Everything except the one thing God wanted most. A commitment from their heart which would have, would, would have resulted in repentance and ultimately a changed life. You see, just repenting is not enough. It's one thing to, to, to go on your face before God and say, God, I'm sorry. But if you get up and you walk right back out and you don't, nothing has changed, then you're still the same person. And the Bible tells us that when we are saved, we become a new creation. That's why it is so important that when we, first we believe. Yes, we have to believe first, because if you don't believe that you're a sinner, if you don't believe that Jesus died on a cross for sin, then you're not going to get up out of your chair ever. 
But we start by believing. But that's not enough either because the Bible says the devil believes. So it takes more than just believing. We have to, to come before the Lord in, a, in an attitude of repentance. And we, we come to him and say, I realize what you did on the cross was enough, and I'm asking you to forgive my sins. And it also means repentance means a change in direction. That's that whole new creature thing, new creation that Paul wrote about. And then the Bible tells us we need to be baptized. If you've never been baptized, you need to get baptized. It takes about 45 minutes to fill that up. If you're willing to stay for about 45 minutes after church, we can do that today. And then it's not even over. God has promised then that he would fill us with his spirit. And that we would have the Holy Spirit living in us to lead and to guide us into all truth. It's that process. Yes, you have to believe. But don't just stop with believing. Don't just stop saying, yeah, I realize I'm a sinner. Well, that doesn't do anything. The problem with the, the people of Israel, they wouldn't even admit they were sinners. In the latter part, part of verse 8, Michael lays out for Israel what God required for them, required from them. God required basically three responses from Israel. First of all, they were to act justly. To act justly speaks of their, their outward walk. This refers to how they were to treat other, their fellow men, their brothers and sisters. It's more than just talking about doing the right thing. It means doing the right thing regardless of what everyone else is doing. It means doing the right thing when the right thing is not popular. Secondly, he told them that they were to love mercy. To love mercy speaks of an inward attitude. The first one was an outward attitude. The next one is an inward attitude. Loving mercy refers to an inward commitment to God's truth, which manifests itself in a right relationship with God and with other people. When we love mercy, it will change the way that we love other people and it will change the way that we love God. And then lastly, they were to walk humbly with God. To walk with God speaks of an upward direction of their lives. So there was an, out, an inward, an outward, and an upward direction here. It speaks again of a right attitude toward God. One that manifests itself in a determination to walk in continual fellowship with him. A walk that is obedient and a walk that continually honors him. So what do all three of these requirements have in common? Every one of them is a manifestation of love either for our fellow man or of love for our God. Remember what I said earlier, the Jewish rabbis identified 613 commandments in the law. Then we talked about how God kind of condensed those 613 down to 10 basic commandments. Well, here, seemingly in an effort to, to answer the, the question of what do you want from me? Micah seems to have condensed it down to three things. Because if we live with these three principles in mind, it will cover the other ten. And then 700 years later, maybe in an effort to help those of us who might be a bit commitment cha commandment challenged, 
if that's really a thing. Jesus condensed these commandments down to two. Look what Jesus said in Matthew 22, verses 35 through 40. There was a bunch of Pharisees and legal guys that were standing around talking to Jesus, and one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord with your, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. You can take everything else, every belief that we have, every do or don't, And you can condense it down, and these two will cover it. If you love the Lord with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself, you're good. (laughs) And you got it covered. So we would think we went from 613 down to 10, down to 3, down to 2, and we could probably handle that. And yet we struggle. If we love God like we should, with all our heart, we will seek to walk with him in righteousness. God is looking for more than just a commitment to follow a set of rules. There are people that say, yeah, but I do this, 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 and this. That doesn't change your heart. It makes you good at following rules. Those of you who were in the military, you followed the rules, right? Didn't make you a Christian. It just made you good at following rules. made you a soldier. What God looks for in us is a love for him that eclipses every other love in our life. God is looking for the kind of love that manifests itself in holy living, that glorifies him exalts him, and seeks him over everything else. Another important truth regarding these three requirements is all three of these commands are impossible for us as humans to carry out on our own power. It's impossible for us to love like we should in our own power. It's impossible for us to love God like we should in our own power. We need, we need God's help to accomplish any of this. That's why the phrase that, that closes Micah 6.8 is important. It says, walk humbly with your God. And the key to that phrase is your God. Those two words speak of a personal relationship with God. Because now he's not just a God. He is my God. When we are rightly related to God through a real relationship with him, we receive power through the Holy Spirit to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. It is not within our power to do what makes us acceptable to God. 
It is our relationship with him that makes it possible. Our relationship to God brings us into contact with his power, and it is his power that allows us to fill, fulfill what he requires of us. Let's look at one last thought regarding these three requirements in Micah 6.8. I want to make sure we understand that to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before God will not save us. That's not what it takes to be saved. Trying to fulfill those requirements will not make us right with him because salvation is not found in works. Salvation is found in faith through Jesus Christ alone. Someone once said, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The truth of that statement is made clear in one of the best known passages in the New Testament. Paul wrote this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. We are not saved by works, but when we are saved and in a personal relationship with Jesus, we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to fulfill his will through our works. In other words, if you are saved, you will have works. You can't get saved by works. But if you are saved, you will have works. You will have fruit. Ephesians 2.10 goes on to say this. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. While doing justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly before God will not save us, they will always be the result of a genuine salvation experience. If you're saved, those things will show up in your life. Good works won't make us right with God. But love for God, love for others, will always be true and it will always be the fruit of those who know and love God. So what does your walk with God say about your relationship with Him? God has not changed his mind about what he expects from people. He expects a heart that is repentant. He expects a commitment to put him above everything else and everything else. When we do that, he expects us to demonstrate our relationship with him through the outward, the inward, and the upward focus of our lives. When you truly know him, you will do justly. You will love mercy and walk humbly or carefully with your God. The people of Israel failed to heed the Lord's call to righteousness and they paid a very high price for the refusal. Don't let the same thing happen to you. The Lord is calling us all to a closer walk and now is the time to heed his call. We can ask the question in the title of this sermon in two different ways. We can say, Lord, what do you want from me? 
with the same attitude as the Israelites that we read about today in, in the book of Micah. Or we can say it from a heart of repentance, dedication, commitment, and sincerity. Lord, what do you want from me? It's the same words. The difference is the attitude with which it's said. He wants our love. And when he has our love, our love will manifest itself in obedience to him. Remember, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. So I'll close with one final question. Now that we know what Micah wrote about. And the question is, are we giving him what he wants? If we're not where we should be, are we willing to make the changes to be pleasing to God? Or are we going to hold on to our personal beliefs in hopes that that will be enough? One thing I know for sure, someday we'll all stand before the Lord in judgment. And I will tell you, I don't want to be wrong. I don't want you to be wrong. I don't want you to say, yeah, but I don't really believe that. This is what I believe. If what you believe doesn't match up to the Word of God, it won't work. You can believe it with all your heart. It still won't work. Believing something with all your heart, if it's wrong, won't get you any further than not believing at all. The Bible is clear what God wants from us. It is time for us to make a commitment to God. A lot of times in life, we, we know that we may need to make some changes. And so we pick up a, a spot in time and we say, okay, after, like going on a diet. January 1st, I'm going to go on a diet. Big day for people going on diets. A lot of people buy exercise equipment the week before. Because January 1st, I'm going to go on a diet and I'm going to start exercising. And we pick that day because that's a, that's a, a mark on the calendar that we can say, that's a day that I will begin. We've just been through a really difficult time and are still going through some difficult times. But this could be the marker. We have returned to church. We are returning to church. As we return to church, could we make that commitment? This is my day. This is the day that I will commit what God wants from me. What does he want from me? He wants my all. Not part. He wants all. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. The opposite of that is 
if you seek all of those things first, you'll never find him because you're looking in all the wrong places. We have a choice to make. Would you stand this morning? And I know somebody right about now is thinking, I don't really like these heaven and hell things. If I did any less, I need to turn in my pastor card. Because the fact is, we will all live somewhere for eternity. I can't get saved for you. I can't ride into heaven on the coattails of my dad. And as much as I love you, you can't ride in on the coattails of your pastor. This is something we all have to do on our own. What will you decide? Just as God did with the people of Israel, he made a case and he said, now I'm presenting the case against you. He has done the same to each of us today. There has been a case made against us. What will we do? Lord, today, we are grateful for all that you do for us. Lord, you are a good God. You are a provider. Lord, you have given us mercy. You have shown us grace. Lord, we are so grateful. I ask today that we would not take those things for granted. All the things that you have done, your provision, Lord, for grace and for mercy, that we would not just push them away till some other time. But Lord, that we would come to you and we would give you all we have and make a commitment that starting now, no matter how long we have lived for you, no matter how long we have been saved, that starting now, Lord, I give you my all. I give it all to you. Lord, today I ask that you would continue to speak to our hearts. Draw us to you. Lord, help us not to forget these words we've heard today. Lord, that you would tug at our hearts, even as we leave this place, to know that we need a closer walk with you. And that we can only do it through you. Jesus. And again, we give you praise. We give you honor. We give you glory. We'll ask all of these things in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Take my life.